Maddox toward left center. Right center field is McBride. Robinson-Deering Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K-Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What's cracking? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, half-man, half-podcast machine, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Pauly's Island, South Kakalaki, back in the proverbial Captain Kirk chair. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio programming that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in this week, Seamheads around the globe, as Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear this or any of the other shows I've done in my vaults of expanding archives. And my promise from day one has been, I will never charge you for the content of this show. And I've been offered opportunities, believe you me. But, nah, I ain't about it. I'm never going to Patreon or crowdsource you here in the 2022 economy or 
any economy for that matter. I'm just going to come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke? And I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I'm going to keep it consistent like Kirill. And I'm just going to perform, and we'll see what happens. I'm betting on myself, the show, but I'm especially betting on you. My beautiful-minded Seamhead audience. All I need you to do is subscribe, follow, download, and share. If you are on Apple or Spotify or any other platform that offers you the chance to rate and review, please do so as you see fit. I ain't skirt. Look, the truth is, I'm very proud of this show. And what we've accomplished here thus far in 10 months, I've never missed a deadline. I've blown off holidays, birthdays. I've had medical work done during all this. And every Tuesday, like a Swiss timepiece, I've been here in 10 months. I've covered over 150 years of baseball. From the beginning of professional baseball with the Cincinnati Redlegs, all the way up to the amazing and iconic Albert Pujols. And now, I'm just filling the pages in between those incredible bookends. I love interacting with the fans of the show. You can always hit me up with an email, backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show Twitter page handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. Or you can usually find me on the Facebook at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private uh, group page there. And my boy, Mike D out of Peoria, Illinois. One of these uh, OG lieutenants I'll speak of. Dude goes back with me to the days of flip phones, baby. He dropped me a line that says, uh, just listen to Pool Holes, great show. What it stood out to me was twice he was on the 98th home run and he had two home runs to get the zeros in the same game, 499 and 500, as well as 699 and 700. And that's impressive. He, he talk about not letting the pressure of the big stage get to him. And it's so true, Mikey. Not, not only that, but Numbers 400 and 600 were grand slams, and you're absolutely right. You know, absolutely on point there, my friend. So, Mike, who has ties to Missouri, he also went on to say that he wished I, as in me, Jake, uh, could have experienced some of that hype surrounding this past offseason and the postseason. And that's a main reason why he had to go to the playoff game that year, uh, this past year. It was all, it was his whole family's first playoff game. And he said, we just had to see Yachty and Albert. And that's the thing, folks. Mikey here is as diehard a Pirates fan as you will ever find. Through the good and the painfully horrendous. That's his team. He grew up watching Albert destroy his team many times through the years. Uh, including down the stretch this year when he had 697, 698 against them, I believe. Before heading out to L.A. And it just goes to show the, the level of respect that Albert commands throughout both the American and National League. And you are most certainly right. I, I would have loved to have been there and just drink it all in. I can only imagine how special that was to see him that one last time. A memory uh, you and your family will have forever, man. So, thanks for dropping me that line, bro. Absolutely beautiful. I understand the level of respect for an enemy rival player. Truly, one of my favorite ball players ever played is the great one, Roberto Clemente, who absolutely destroyed my team and made a mockery of my uh, pitching staff there. But, hey, you can't deny that greatness, right? That's respect earned. Sometimes, painfully so, but... Hey, that's baseball, my friend. That's that's baseball. And that's what I'm talking about, folks. I love the interaction. I love hearing your thoughts and baseball takes. So, by all means, drop a line because, really, that's what we do here at Backwards K. We share our love and passion for the greatest game ever invented through our indelible stories, moments, characters. But that's not all we cover here at Backwards K Pod. We cover baseball media, artists, movies, television. And you guys know I love to add baseball stadiums to our collection. As many of you know who have followed me on this journey, I love, love, love stadium shows. So I see the catcher is ready to come down. I'm calling all aboard. Let's get our baseball time machine started here. Let's uh, set our coordinates and date to Kansas City, Missouri, April 12th, 1955. 
as this week I will be bringing you the history of Kaufman Stadium, home of the Kansas City Royals. Now, if you've been walking this path with me, you know I've been adding the modern stadiums to our collection from the oldest on up to the most modern. And Kaufman is now the sixth oldest stadium in the major leagues, which really, it just, well, blows my mind. So, since it is the sixth oldest stadium, this is the fifth modern MLB stadium in our collection I have done. Uh, That's after Fenway, Wrigley, Dodger Stadium, and the Big A in Anaheim. Now, some of you may be like, huh, Snake, you missed the stadium here. Well... When I first started this, I promised to the audience I would do 28 of the 30 current stadiums in the majors. Now, I refuse to do research on the Oakland Mausoleum out in Alameda County and that goddamn trop in Tampa. I'm not doing a show in those two shitboxes. Get a new crib, and I'll be all over it. Well, the Mausoleum is the fifth oldest stadium, so we leapfrog that embarrassment. And here I am looking at you, Kansas City. And I've also done the throwback, uh, throwback classic stadiums like Polo Grounds, Shy Park. I did Shy Park since I'm not doing the mausoleum. I did Shy Park for the Ace fans, Crosley Field. And you can find all those shows on any of the platforms you listen to this uh, pod on. Or you can go over to my website, dominicsnakejig.podbean.com, to listen in on the history of these baseball cathedrals. But, anyway, it looks like we've arrived here in Kansas City, but this isn't Royal Stadium, or Kaufman, as it would become known in later years. There's a sign here in the parking lot that says, Municipal Stadium. Uh, This is a stadium for the athletics who have moved from Philly to Kansas City this past winter. And before a standing room only crowd of 32,147 fans, the A's beat the Tigers 6-2. Former President Harry S. Truman, flanked by the franchise stalwart Connie Mack, who, uh, President Truman threw out the first pitch in Missouri's first American League opener since April 23, 1902. Now, President Truman, who had recently retired to Independence, Missouri, which was about an hour away from Municipal Stadium. He never missed an opening day. In Washington, Truman became the first president to throw the first pitch of the season right-handed and left-handed. One year, he threw with both arms successively. Another time, he threw it like a soccer throw-in with both hands to cup the ball, and he hurled it from over his head. And like most of the pitchers in that day, President Truman liked the new A's crib, which housed the American Association Blues from 1923 to 1954, as well as the Kansas City Monarchs, the Negro League team from 1937 to 1954. And for years, Kansas City enjoyed a great Negro Leagues and Yankees Farm Club tradition. Now, by the early 1950s, Kansas City Star sports editor Ernie Mel, he persuaded the Blues owner Arnold Johnson that Kansas City was deserving of a big league team. Johnson, who was the owner of the Blues in the Yankee Stadium, he bought the A's from Mack in November of 1954. He then moved them out of Filthy. With, uh, you know, he kind of had this collusion thing with the Yankees owners, Del Webb and Dan Topping, uh, they kind of worked the other owners into giving this the okay. Kansas City bought Blue Stadium, they renamed it Municipal, and they leased it back to the A's and their new owner. In 22 weeks, the city rebuilt and double-decked the park to a capacity of 30,716 people. Now, you have to remember, folks, we're sitting here in 1955, and baseball's most extreme geographic port at this time was Boston and St. Louis. And this venture into Kansas City, it made the railroads about as irrelevant as an uh, VHS tape. In fact, a sidebar here. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Jackie Jensen. 
Dude was a beast. If you look him up, you'll see the guy was like this perennial all-star who led the league three times in RBIs. He played for the Red Sox. He was an absolute baller. And those were during the railroad years. But as teams started expanding further west, it became more difficult for Jensen to ride at training games. He had a horrifying fear of flying. And he would ride trains as long as he could make it to the games in time. But with teams like Kansas City sprouting up, it became impossible. And he quit after the 1959 season. He comes back for 137 games in 1961 before quitting for good. Now, Jackie Jensen had a beast of an 11-year career. 120 OPS plus and a 279, 369, 460 slash. But in the end... His fear of heights and the fact that baseball was now ending up in places like Kansas City. Well, that was the end of his baseball career. In December of 1960, Chicago insurance broker Charles O. Finley. He brought controlling interest on the A's. Finley, a complex man, he lived on the fringes of, you know, diabolical perspectives, I would call it. On one hand, Finley was considered cheap, frugal, cruel, stingy. And on the other hand, Finley knows baseball. He knows talent. Catfish Hunter, John Blue Moon Odom, they got bonus checks. Bert Cabaneras arrives from Chuba. Sal Bando, Rick Monday, Reggie Jackson, they're drafted. In many ways, Charlie was like his own scouting department. In 1963, President Truman and his wife, Bess, whom Harry often said was the real baseball fan in the family, they joined Finley in Charlie's private box, adorned in the new adopted Kelly Green and gold colors for the A's. In fact, with health still permitting, the the Trumans often left their independence home to watch the A's in person, causing Harry to once quip, may the sun never set on American baseball. Under Arnold Johnson, the ex-Yankees Farm Club continued to send fine big league ballers to New York City, earning the nickname the Yankees Cousins. On May 3, 1965, Finley himself, who despised making deals with New York, he greased that Bronx shuttle by acquiring pitcher Raleigh Sheldon and catcher John Blanchard from the Yankees in exchange for catcher Doc Edwards and pitcher Steve Blass. Blanchard... Luckily, had been the catching understudy for Yogi Berra and Elson Howard. He rarely played, but he enjoyed those postseason and World Series bonus checks. And he's weeping inconsolably when he finds out he's been dealt. When slugger Mickey Mantle approaches him and he says, What's wrong, Blanche? And the catcher, through his sobs and tears, he tells Mickey, I got traded to Kansas City today. To which Mickey says, well, hell, that's great news, John. You, you, you'll be getting serious playing time now. To which Blanchard retorted, that's why I'm crying, Mick. You know I can't play baseball. And he wasn't lying. The exposed Blanchard, he batted 252 games and was later sold to Milwaukee and was never seen again after his very short stint there. The next season, 1966, Jackson County, Missouri. They commissioned a study on the viability of a building, a new stadium in Kansas City. Municipal Stadium, which was built in 1923, was still decidedly short by 7,500 seats that were promised to Arnold Johnson when he bought the team. Municipal had scam parking. It was hard to reach and it had limited amenities. The NFL Kansas City Chiefs, who were sharing the crib at that time, they were becoming restless as well with the stadium situation. In retrospect... The county commission study was a reflection of how Kansas City was thinking big at this time. There was a proposal for a multi-purpose dome stadium that would house the baseball and the football team, and it would also include a smaller arena for hockey and baseball. The dome, the dome would have 49,000 fixed seats and 7,000 bleacher seats for a 56,000 baseball capacity. But that was deemed too large. Now, two sites are suggested. The core burning uh, business district of downtown. And one in the Leeds area, nestled between Interstate 70 
and the 435 because of easy accessibility, accessibility and the availability factors. The second site was adopted, and thankfully, the multi-sports dome concept was not. In June of 1967, a vote in Jackson County approved a $43 million bond issue for the Truman Sports Complex. It's important to note here that uh, $43 million in 1967, it has the purchasing power of $344 million in today's busted-ass economy in 2022. Soon thereafter, a new uh, consensus was formed. Kansas City no longer had ambitions for a multi-purpose stadium. Instead, the idea was hatched to have two separate stadiums, one for the A's and one for the Chiefs. Even after Finley broke his agreed lease with the state by fleeing to Oakland in 1967, the county restated its support for a 75,000-seat football stadium and a 45,000-seat stadium for baseball. And it really says something about the ingenuity of the Kansas City policymakers as Royal Stadium was truly an innovative idea. Much in the same way Comiskey and Fenway had set the standards for neighborhood jewel box cribs, and much like the Oriole Park at Camden Yards gave birth to the modern age retro crib, Kansas City was thinking outside the box in an age when most baseball cities shared the stadium with a football team, and they were housed in these horrendous cookie-cutter monstrosities of the day. And it was the sole Baseball-only park built between the 1962 Dodger Stadium and the 1991 New Comiskey Park. The only one. Now, Missouri Senator Stuart Symington, he vowed legislation to revoke baseball's antitrust exemption if Kansas City wasn't given another club. Smart move. Strong power move right there. Ultimately, the threats worked as baseball expanded by four teams in 1969. The Royals and the Seattle Mariners would join the American League, while Montreal and San Diego made the National League their new home. The new KC team owner was the local-based pharmaceutical czar, Ewing Kaufman, whose Marion Laboratories had a market value of about $156 million in 1967, which is about... $1.39 $1.39 billion with a B today. I always thought the name Royals was like this nod to the Monarchs. But actually the name Royals originated from the American Royal Livestock, livestock uh, which was like a horse rodeo and championship barbecue competition. And that's been held yearly in Kansas City since 1899. In 1968, they had a naming contest with more than 17,000 voters. Sanford Port, a bridge builder from Overland Park, he won for the name Royals, citing Missouri's billion-dollar livestock income as well as Kansas City's position as the nation's leading stocker and feeder market. And, of course, the nationally recognized American Royal Parade and Pageant. By 1973, the Royals have a new home, and it's turning heads. On July 11, 1968, Clarence Kimmett, Ralph Myers, they were the KC-based architects pioneering this new style, along with design associate Charles Deacon. The footprint of the stadium put the premium on pitching, defense, speed, and extra base hits, as opposed to home runs. The top two decks, they circled around home plate to each foul pole. A lower tier surpassed them to the bullpen, perpendicular to the field. And all seats in the box and bleachers face second base. Now, she was originally known as Royal Stadium, or the K, but it would eventually be renamed Kaufman Stadium. Shortly before the death of Ewing Kaufman, in August of 1993. And I can't stress how much this crib was outside of the box thinking. 
for engineers at the time. The, the, the Cooker Cutter Baseball Stadium. A time of seen one, seen them all, and one was too many. Royal Stadium has housed two All-Star Games, 1973-2012, as well as four World Series, 1980-1985, 2014, and 2015. It's a historical prize, the same as Wrigley and Fenway, but it has modernized at a tune of $281 million from 2007 to 2010. The Royals are a small market team that draws crowds of fans from literally hundreds of miles away. For two decades, they were the only team from the Mountain Time Zone until the Rockies joined the league in 1993. Municipal Stadium had served its purpose. It was a 1930 structure, but from the beginning, Kaufman was a palace. The backstop was 60 feet, or 18.2 meters away from home plate, which made the fan feel like he or she was literally on top of the action compared to other stadiums. The park, it played fair. Each pole was 330 feet, which is close to 101 meters. The alleys were set at 387 feet, 118 meters. Later, they would be reset at 114.3 meters, or 375 feet, before going back to 387 feet in 2004. With center field standing 410 feet, or close to 125 meters from home plate. The footprint design for the stadium had played to pitching, defense, and speed. And hopefully my fellow international CMAP brothers and sisters can get a better feel for the building when I use the metric system for you. It's expansive and it's majestic. And one of the key initial hires for Kaufman was former Angels executive Cedric Tallis to become the Royals' first general manager. And his point man for park operations was officially opened April 10, 1973. With 39,646 fans braving 39-degree weather as the Royals trounced the Texas Rangers 12-1. And here are some of uh, the Calvin Stadium's first from that inaugural 73 season. First Royals winning pitcher was Paul Splittorf, opening day. Uh, he was a crappy slender southpaw. I always loved that dude. First batter was Rangers infielder Dave Nelson, who would ironically join the Royals two years later. The first hit in the stadium history, it came from the bat of Amos Otis. Diminutive shortstop Freddie Potsek, he scored the first run in the stadium. John Mayberry was the first player to drop Dong in Ewing Kaufman. And Kaufman was the first AL Park to use AstroTurf. 17 days after opening day, Steve Busby throws KC's first no-hitter in Detroit. He would also throw one a year later in 1974 versus the Milwaukee Brewers at County Stadium. He became the second Royals hurler to throw a no-hitter when he did that. In 1977, Jim Colburn would throw the first no-hitter in Royal Stadium as a Royal when he stymied the Rangers 6 to nothing. And Brett Saberhagen would no-hit the White Sox at home on August 26, 1991 to throw the fourth, I'm sorry, the fifth and the last no-hitter, I'm sorry, the fourth and the last no-hitter in club history. Ironically, no-hitter guru Nolan Ryan he threw the first no-hitter at Royal Stadium on May 15, 1973, when he shut down the Royals 3-0. Three to, three to Not only was the first no-hitter thrown in the K, it was Nolan Ryan's very first of his record-setting seven career no-hitters. The Royals hosted the All-Star Game in 1973 as the NL won 7-1, and the stadium drew over 1,345 million people, which almost doubled Municipal Stadium's total in 1972. Once inside the brand new AstroTurf Stadium, your eyes are instantly focused on the park's symbol, towering above an incline beyond the outfield fence. A $2.7 million, 12-story high, crown-shaped scoreboard. 
with the Royals insignia, and it used more than 16,000 light bulbs. Now, $2.7 million in 1973 is about $18 million in the 2022 economy. Beneath and to the right center field side is a 322-foot or 98-meter sidewater complex that costs $750,000 at the time of its construction, and it is still the world's largest privately funded fountain on the planet. 750 grand in 1973, and has the purchasing power of over $5 million here in 2022. The fountain consists of a 10-foot waterfall from an upper cascading pool, serving as a backdrop for two water fountain pools, each 40 feet wide, and ending in front with five 10 feet high horseshoe style falls. As volumes swell, water rose, 19 pumps circulating 70,000 cubic feet, nearly 700 500 watt lamps lit up to 50,000 gallons of water sailing skyward at a time. And through all the winds, losses, Major renovations that have occurred since that nipply cold 1973 opener. The fountain has been there. As well as the structure's, uh, you know, symbiotic connection to fundamental baseball. Kaufman was built for hit him where they ain't ball. And not like, you know, these miniature golf course-like stadiums you see all over the league nowadays. The outfields aggress quickly from each pole, and it, it becomes a classic power alley, almost like a classic 70s NL ballpark. For example, like old Bushfield in St. Louis. In 1976, George Brett lit up the ballpark as he and teammate Hal McCray battled for an AL batting title with Brett winning it outright when he hit it inside the park home run at Royal Stadium and that season's last at bat. And with that win, the Royals clinched their first division title. And infielders Freddie Ponsack and Cookie Rojas, they had a party in the fountains. The Royals would fall to the Yankees in the ALCS in five. Three games to two. But the Royals knew they would be back in 1977. Staff Dennis Leonard, he goes 20-12. and 12. McCray hits 54 doubles. Pontech swipes 53 bags, leading the Royals to another AL West title. Only to see the Yankees overcome a two-games-to-one deficit and beat the Royals again in the ALCS. And if that wasn't enough, the Yankees took the Royals out for a third consecutive LCS in 1978. In 1979, Willie Wilson hit five inside-the-park home runs for the most by any player since 1925. Now, factors that aided the speed game was its quick astroturf surface. The outfield walls were softly padded, which contained, you know, these drives into the corners. And with its curving corners, it created unpredictability in determining where caroms may land. It also had an almost concrete warning track, which kangarooed high hops off the wall, over the outfielder's head, and back towards the infield. In 1980, Brett flirted with a 400 batting average throughout the season. He ended up hitting 390. The baseball gods would finally smile on KC as the Royals finally knocked out the Yankees in the league championship for the right to take on the Philadelphia Phillies in the World Series. The fighting Phils, they jump out to a quick two-game lead when they won game one 7-6 and game two 6-4. Kansas City went home and won game uh, three and four, uh, one game three, four to three, with Otis and Brett dropping game breaking dong. The next day, slugger Willie Mays Akins he hits two bombs to lead the Royals to a five to three victory. And even this, you know, this series had two games apiece. In game five, the Royals had the lead going into the ninth when Del Unser and Manny Trio they drove in runs off a of Royals closer Dan Quisenberry to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and giving the Phillies a pivotal three games and two lead. In game six, the Phillies took a 4-1 lead going into the ninth. 
Closer Tug McGraw, he loaded the bases. Royal second baseman Frank White, he found a pop fly near the first base dugout. That catcher Bob Blue, Bob Boone dropped, and as the ball was falling from his catcher's mitt to the ground, Pete Rose, with his quick reflexes and incredible hand-eye coordination, he snatched the hurling ball, uh, Aaron Ball, with his bare hand, and at 11.29 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the 97-year-old Phillies won their first title, while the 12-year-old Royals would have to wait. During rain delays, they had frogmen cleaning the right center field fountains. They had Heartlander mixed barbecue beef and local Boulevard beer giveaways. After the games, win or lose, there was a 9 minute 58 second water spectacular sell. Sellout after sellout from a small market with bands coming from all over the Kansas and Missouri region. By this time, Middle America is getting the sense that the Royals are becoming the king of the baseball hill. On August 8, 1983, a regular season record of 41,039 fans show up to see a split two-night twin-build doubleheader with the Milwaukee Brewers. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the infamous Pine Tar game even though it took place in Yankee Stadium, there will, of course, be this uh, George Brett show that we'll be doing at some point here on Backwards K Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And I'll certainly dig into the Pine Tar game with more conviction in that show. But on July 24th, George brought George Brett crushed the game uh, breaking ninth inning missile that landed beyond the right field Yankee Stadium wall and put the Royals up five to four in the top half of the inning. Yankees manager Billy Martin he walks up to home plate umpire Tim McClellan and they begin having a conversation. Man, they're talking and they're talking and they're looking at Brett's bat and they're looking in the Royals dugout at George. And Elmer McClellan, he picks up the bat, he looks at it, and he lays it on the ground next to home plate. And the umpires and Billy, they're looking at the bat, and the, the confused Royals, are, they're, they're the visitors dug out, staring at home plate. And all of a sudden, Billy turns around, he's celebrating, McClellan picks up the bat, points to George Brett, and calls him out. And reality, it's Brett, and that dude goes off. I mean, he bolts from the dugout like, you know, Mike Tyson in his prime rushing out from his corner. Uh, he's coming out in this near murderous rage. And again, I'll be covering this extensively in the near future on The Brett Show. Most of the audience has seen it, but if you haven't, go to your YouTube machine, search uh, bar, Pine Tar Game, and get yourself some popcorn and watch George lose his shit on loop for about 45 minutes. It'll change your whole perspective on life in baseball. In short, for the first time in MLB history, a league president, Lee McPhail, the American League, he overruled the umpire. The Pine Tar Game resumed on August 18th at Yankee Stadium with 1,245 fans in the stands. It saw McCray make the final out the top of the ninth with the Royals leading 5-4. And then the quiz. Dan Quisenberry, the dominating submarine closer for Kansas City, came in and shut down the Yankees in the ninth. One, two, three. To finally seal the Royals' victory almost a month after the, the original game was played. The Royals were now a team playing at, a, at an elite level. But, but they're just coming up short in the post. In 1984, they won the NOS, but they ran into the juggernaut Tigers team in the League Championship Series, they got swept. By 1985, the team is chopping at the bit, uh, ready to fulfill their destiny. They remain behind the Angels until September before finally taking over and winning the AL West in September. Uh, they would win the division outright in the regular season's next to the last series. In the League Championship Series, they fell behind to the Toronto Blue Jays Three games to one before storming back from the break of elimination to win three in a row and win the American League pennant. In the World Series, Kansas City was up to their usual waiter waiting and lingering. And I want to make sure I get this sound up where we need it. 
You know, they're not looking good the first two games. In fact, they dig themselves a three-to-one hole. And they would have to come back. They would smash the cards in game five, six-to-one. Game six was highlighted by a Don Deckinger blown call at first base in favor of the Royals. And that game would end with a blue two-RBI two single by Royals' Dane Org, driving in Org's Concepcion and Jim Sundberg, surviving their inner desperations and heading to Game 7. That Game 7 uh, was never, you know, it was, it was the one game that was a blowout. It was never close. The Royals scored three runs in the third. Six in the fifth. I mean, the Cardinals just had the win taken out of them with that horrible play at first base. And with that year's AL Cy Young Award winner, Brett Saberhagen, uh, he basically annihilated the Cards batters. The Royals curb stopped their way to an 11-0 victory in Game 7. Kansas City became only the fifth team to overcome a three games for one deficit. And they were the first team to overcome the deficit after losing the first two at home. And I got a little interview here with Brett Saberhagen, who was in his second year as a professional player, and George Brett came up to him when he was on the mound, and he said to him something to him that I thought was pretty incredible. I wanted to share it with you. Welcome back to the 17th of the World Series, a term that by itself has a magical ring. Game six, a very close ball game. Get a little break with uh, Don Deck and Jermaine missing a call. After that, them not being able to get a final out. That really kind of catapulted us into uh, Game 7. Going into Game 7 is probably the most nervous I've ever been starting a game. Not probably. The most nervous I've ever been. He's a cool and composed one, and it's a cliche to say that, but how else do you describe Brett Saberhagen? That day, I had everything going from jump start. There go. I don't think I felt my feet touch the ground for the first three innings. And uh, the scoring began. It made it a lot easier to go out there and just relax and pitch the ball game. The last out, George came over when there was two outs and nobody on. And he said, when this guy makes the last out, and he will make the last out, he told me. I don't want you running anywhere. He says, I've been playing this game for a long time, and this is only your second year, so I want to celebrate with you. Don't run anywhere else. So sure enough, the ball goes in the air, and he bounced like it. The ball to Daryl Motley, and it seemed like it took an eternity for it to come down and him catch it. And then after that, uh, yeah, it was a big celebration on the field. I remember running off, throwing my hat into the stands. For a complete game shutout, being out on the, the mound for the final out of Game 7 World Series. 1985 was a magical year. And man, I just love hearing about that, how, you know, Saber Hagen's just a second-year player, and George Brett comes up to him, and he's like, look, buddy, when you get this last out, and you will get it out, you make sure you don't leave. In fact, come come over here, and we're going to celebrate together. And I just think that's a beautiful story, with that first world title in their hand after 17 years of existence. Randy Galloway of the Dallas Morning News wrote, moving on over, you Mets of 1969, way over. Go to the history board and rip out the page about the Miracle Braves of 1914 and don't let anyone tell you about the Giants' miracle of Coogan's Bluff in 1951. The Royals of 1985 were in an upset class of their own. End quote. And side note here, I've covered all those moments he's just mentioned in that op-ed. I covered the 69 Mets uh, World Series run in the Nolan Ryan show. I covered the Miracle Braves in 19, uh, 1914 and my history of the Braves show. And I covered a little bit of the childhood around the world in the Polo Ground show. All of those shows are available on all platforms, or you can go on over to DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com to listen to those specific stories. Saberhagen, he won another side in 1989. 37-year-old George Brett won his third batting title. 
Brett is the sole player with 3,000 hits, 300 home runs, 600 doubles, 100 triples, and 200 steals. The future Hall of Famer would get his 3,000 hit on September 30th, 1992, and then he probably got picked off first base. <laughs> the stadium was now renamed from Royal Stadium to Kaufman. And boasted a new Jumbotron video display board, an amusement area with pitching booths. They built a royal courtyard picnic and music area. There was a famed barbecue and locally loved Belafonte ice cream stands. And as ownership has always made a concerted effort to keep the park clean, presentable, and up to date. Unfortunately, from 1986 to 2014, nothing helped Kansas City contend, and they did away with the AstroTurf in favor of grass uh, that you can actually smoke. <laughs> For years, the team ailed, but the stadium flourished. Drowning 2.5 uh, million fans in 1989. From 2004 to 2012, the realigned AL Central team had finished last, including the Death Valley Depths of 56 and 106 in 2005. However, as their present got lousier and lousier, the future became brighter and brighter. On April 4th, 2006, Jackson County, Missouri, they gave the go-ahead for a three-eighth cent sales tax. And they put it on the ballot to renovate the Truman Sports Complex. A second proposal on the ballot was for a portable roof. Thankfully, that was struck down, though. Park renovations began October 3rd, 2007, and it was completed by opening day 2009. Now, Remarkably, this came during the retro ballpark evolution age that had been started by Oral Park and Camden Yards in 1992. By the time that Kaufman begins doing this renovation to their stadium, there's already been 21 ballparks built since uh, Camden. And they're all trying to outquirk each other and build up a Camden success. Again, Kaufman Stadium became the exception to the rule. Just as they had steered away from those uh, multi-purpose cookie cutters of the day, they provided an evolution siring a more contemporaneous and cozier feel than the original Royal Stadium. Unlike other cities, Kansas City needed less of a new park than they needed to make a fine park better. If I'm explaining that in any way possible to understand. They added a high-depth scoreboard they called the Crown Vision. They built themed restaurants inside the crib, a conference center, better concessions, circulation and concourses, and they jammed seating closer to the field. They actually lowered capacity to 37903 to better fit their supply and demand. The $8.3 million, 84-foot-wide by 150-foot-high scoreboard was among the first new features installed. And it replaced the Matrix board shaped like the team's logo that was pre present since the stadium's birth. Since 2008, a strobe light atop the board flashes whenever Royals drop dog. The franchise also pays homage to their past with four st statues made of bronze in Alfield Plaza. Beyond the still-standing fountains. Uh, you got Ewing Kaufman and his wife Muriel. They're waving. George Brett awaiting the pitch in his classic stance. That right foot slightly raised with his bat cocked. There's a uh, Frank White statue. He's turning one of his double plays. And manager Dick Hauser standing on the dugout steps. One, It's like standing there with one leg on a dugout step. It's a really, really cool statue. You should go take a look at it. Renovation work also consisted of exterior work, widening concourses on all levels and on the outfield plaza that connects the entire ballpark. And it gives the KC Seamhead a 360-degree walkway around the magnificent park. The improvements also include new Fountain View Terrace seats in the outfield. Nearby is a site where the youth can practice their own baseball skills on a state-of-the-art miniature baseball field where big league dreams are spawned. And 
Everywhere you enter, you are met with smiling and gracious Midwesterners saying, Welcome to the K. And Cooperstown, George Brett is the only player wearing a Kansas City hat on his bust. And number five has been retired by the franchise. I expect Salvi Perez to one day join Mr. Brett, but Calvin Stadium recognizes other Hall of Fame greats rocking the KC lid back in the day. Of course, I'm talking about KC, Monarchs, Negro League stars like Cool Papa Bell, Andy Cooper, Jose Mendez, Satchel Paige, Jackie Robinson, Hilton Smith, Turkey Stearns, Cristobal, Torriente, Willie Wells, uh, the owner, J.L. Wilkinson, and of course, of course, Buck O'Neill. They're all recognized intermittently throughout the joint. They also recognize the Monarchs by placing a red seat amongst the sea of blue behind home plate. And the nominees to sit in the special seat are required to embody the spirit of the community, as this was the seat that Mr. O'Neill always sat in. In 2012, Buck was recognized on the national stage one last time when the All-Star Game came back to Calvin Stadium. The next year, KC topped 500 for the first time since 2003. The team was sitting at 48-50 when it inexplicably went on a 22-5 run, finishing a game behind Detroit. The Royals then began the practice of placing a, a blue W to mark each victory under the Hall of Fame star in the ballpark roof like they do in Wrigley. In their first, first postseason appearance since 1985, the Royals beat Oakland in the wild card round, then swept the heavily favor, favored Angels in the division series before bouncing the heavily favored Orioles out of the championship series. Their miraculous run would come to an end as they would fall to the Giants in the World Series. Kansas City returned in 2015 to prove that 14 was no fluke. They made some savvy in-season moves by trading for Johnny Cueto and Ben Zobris and finishing with a 95-67 record, winning the AL Central and earning home field advantage. In the division series, they took apart Houston and the Blue Jays in the LCS. The Royals' prize was a face-off versus the New York Mets in the World Series. George Brett threw out the first pitch. And Alcides Escobar hit an inside-the-park home run first pitch of the game from Matt Harvey. The first in Park World Series history. Uh, the first in-the-park home run in World Series history since Mule Haas in 1929. And the Royals went on to dominate from there, taking the series, uh, the series four game to one for the Royals' second World Championship franchise and their history. On Tuesday, November 3rd, a day and a half after the series final out, 800,000 people jammed downtown Kansas City, thanking their Royals heroes, and it began in the Power and Light District and ended 2.3 miles later at Union Station. It was a feeling, probably different in appearance, than when uh, you know President Truman and his wife Bess had imagined you know, it was probably certainly different than anything they could have imagined. It's, you know, when they encouraged the rise of baseball in Kansas City. But, and it's probably the same feeling, although Calvin Stadium is the sixth oldest in the best. She, she, she remains one of the best. And it's truly amazing. Like I said, they didn't need a new ballpark. They just needed a, to make a great ballpark even better. And I think that's where I'm going to end it right here as I proudly add this beautiful baseball crib to our collection. Let me break down the final skinny on her for you Kansas City Seamheads. Give you a little overview. Center field runs along spectacular I-70 along third base. On the northwest side of the yard, you have Lancer Lane, then Dutton Brookfield Drive. Home fleet on the west, southwest side of your park is Royal Way, then it's Chiefs Way and Arrowhead Stadium. Uh, it was, like I said, the first AL stadium to have AstroTurf playing surface, and they used that from 1973 to 1994. In 1995, the Royals went to grass, and thankfully, it has been that way since. 
The company that did the 10 phases of renovation from 2007 to 2010 on Calvin, uh, that was the Kansas City-based architect firm HOK Sports. They're the same powerhouse firm that changed the game with Cannon Yards, PNC Park, Miller Park, and many of the other retro stadiums to pop up since the 90s. It cost $70 million to build in 1973, and the total bill on the renovations in 2010 was $250 million, and the stadium is currently owned by Jackson County. The outfield walls were originally 12 feet high, which, if you can imagine, it helped the team like the 70s and 80s Royals because of their team speed. As I explained, the caroms off the wall, they weren't true, so you had a lot of quirkiness out there with the high walls, concrete warning tracks, perfect for speedy guys like Brett, White, Otis, McCray, and of course, Willie Wilson, who probably exploited Royal Stadium services and dimensions better than anyone in the history of that club. Now, those walls stand about nine feet tall today, and it's been repeatedly voted as the best batting eye in the bigs by Major League Baseball players. All of the original seats from 1973 were either orange and gold, and they were replaced with new blue seats in 1998. The Royals displayed the 19, uh, the Royals displayed the 1985 World Series Championship Trophy as well as other trophies throughout the uh, through the sixth inning of each game in Section 107. The Royals have retired three numbers in their franchise. Again, I expect Salvi Perez to be added once this story has been fully told. But right now, they got Dick Hauser, number 10, George Brett, number 5, and number 20 for Frank White. Because of the placement of the lights, you may have noticed that fans in the upper deck by both poles are in relative darkness in night games. And it's true. As someone who has never been there, and I'm doing the research, and I'm watching film, fly balls along the foul lines, it really gets dark out there. It's fascinating. I never truly noticed that before. And look, like I said, today fans from Mizzou and Kansas, as well as other surrounding states, they come to the cage to enjoy Royals baseball. They enjoy the views of the fountain beyond the outfield and the Midwest landscape. The parking is plentiful, and fans can enter Kaufman through many locations. Once inside, there are numerous circular ramps and escalators to get where you need to go. Practically anywhere you go around the stadium, fans can see the fountains. There's a familiarity there. There's comfort for the Royal Seamhead. And there you have it, folks. I really, I really got to get to this stadium one day. I, I love stadium shows. I'm a hardcore, you know, East Coast guy. The furthest, furthest west I've ever lived is Gulfport, Mississippi. And even though we are here as one in America, it truly is like learning another culture. The, the background story with the A's and Finley and President Truman to the construction and the tradition that follows, sprinkling some George Brett greatness, some World Series ma- magic, followed by dark days and renovation, new life, World Series ring. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is why I do this show. It's just this profound love of baseball and her indelible stories and there truly, truly is no greater sport on the planet. Before we get out of here, the 2022 MLB playoffs are in the book with only two teams remaining. One team unexpectedly rises from the ashes in the Philadelphia Phillies and the other one has absolutely destroyed every team in their path as they are still undefeated in the post going into the World Series. And that is the Houston Astros. And folks, it's time to face reality out there. For all you in denial, thinking the Astros only won in 17 because of a scandal, reality check. Houston is good. Scary good. If you're holding on to that as your little thing, your little crutch, well, you know, that's that's the point. It's just a gimmicky crutch. They're a good baseball team, and they have proven it year in and year out since your little scandalous, you know, trolls out there. 
They are the dominant species in the baseball universe, whether you like it or not. As for Filthy, unbelievable. It's been an amazing story. By far, the best fans in this postseason has been in Philly. Bryce Harper is out of his mind right now. And folks, with the ship going bye-bye next year, expect Harper to have best years yet next year. I'm serious. You heard it here first. Also, I've enjoyed watching Hoskins play. I, I hope the World Series goes seven and it has a great story. Uh, those games begin this Friday. And speaking of story, thank you for sharing your time with me. I hope you enjoyed listening to that, you know, uh, pod today, the history of Calvin, as much as I enjoyed telling it. Some really cool books and videos out there about Calvin Stadium if you're interested in learning more. One of the books I found useful, The Ultimate Baseball Road Trip, A Fan's Guide to the Major League Stadiums by Joshua Bahesian and Kevin O'Connell, and there's also Joe Mock's Ballpark Guide by Joe Mock. Two really cool books I got a lot of info from, all kinds of stuff on Wiki and YouTube, and by all means, check it out. So, with the history of the, uh, the history of Kaufman Stadium in our rearview mirror, I chop the head of the baseball hydro, only to have two more stories appearing in place. And next week, I'm headed up to Minnesota. Minnesota. We're going to go kick the tires, get under the hood. As I do a deep case study on former Twins icon Kirby Puckett. And we haven't done any Twins-centric stories yet here. And I'm ready to get after it. I love me some Kirby Puckett. But, you know, look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod. Where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, looking miserable and bored AF. The warm months, they're going to be gone soon for you northerners. You better take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless. And win the day.